I'd like for you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'm reading verses 11 through 13. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Now, 2 Thessalonians is a little epistle over to the back of the Bible. One of the letters of the Apostle Paul. And you'll find it there, just a little epistle tucked away back toward the back. And verse 11 begins, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. For, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Now there's a parallel verse, and it's Romans 12, verse 11, and the New International Version of verse 11, Romans 12, is this. Never lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. What he's saying for us is this, that we are to keep our spiritual glow. Don't lose the fire of your faith. Don't lose your enthusiasm. And Melanie Safka came out with a song a while back. It hit the top of the hit parade. It goes something like this, look what they've done with my song, Ma. Look what, they, what they've done with my song. It's the only thing I could do all right, and it's turned out all wrong, Ma. Look what they've done with my song. And she was describing the condition of a, of a lot of people in an unhappy world who have lost their song. The remarkable thing about the Apostle Paul was that he never lost his song. You could put him in prison and at midnight you'd hear him singing. And you could beat him till his back was bruised and bleeding, but he never lost the glow of his faith. And so from the death house he could write to the church at Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. And to the church at Thessalonica, he wrote, don't lose the color of your faith. Don't lose your zeal. But not all of us are like the Apostle Paul. I know some churches that have lost their glow. They're not warm and happy. They're icebox institutions where dissension and lack of spirit thrive. Alexander White, who was a Scottish preacher of another generation, was asked one time if he'd ever preached at a certain church. He wrapped his arms around himself and shuddered and said, I, and I ain't got the chill out of me bones yet. I tell you, a church that has lost its glow sends a chill all the way to the bone. I know some preachers who have lost their glow the color of their faith has faded because of a crushing disappointment or indifference they've encountered. Their dreams collapse. And their zeal, their faith has faded because of some 
reoccurring problem that just comes over and over again, never goes away. And they preach, they live exactly the opposite of what they preach. And I know some spiritual leaders, some church leaders and deacons and Sunday school teachers who have lost the glow of their faith and they accept the temporal care of the church as though it were a, the weight of the world upon their shoulders. And they're down on everything and everybody, soured and disgruntled, and they've lost the glow of their faith. But I'm convinced that there is nothing more vital to the Christian witness than the glow of our faith. As a matter of fact, we are not fully Christian if serving God is a burden. Now I want you to hang some ideas on two questions. The first question is, how do we lose our song? How do we lose our first love? How is it, what happens to fade our faith? How do we lose our zeal? Now I know these answers I'm about to give you are simplistic and they're just a few that are representative of the many, but it's the best I can do. Perhaps we lose the glow of our faith with something because of something as simple as physical exhaustion. Elijah was a case in point. This man was normally courageous, as bold as John the Baptist, rebuking the sin of the king. He was kind of like a general who burned the bridges behind him and went for everything, for victory or death. And so he taunts the high priest, the priest of Baal on Carmel, and he cast his whole destiny upon the answered prayer of Jehovah. He was on fire. He was calling down fire. But on the same day, the same man is now fleeing, afraid of Jezebel, running ahead of the chariots of Ahab all the way 26 miles out into the desert. And he collapses under a juniper tree and there just caves in and loses it. Now how is it that a man could at one moment could be on fire, could be aglow with his, his, his faith in God, and the next moment he's begging for God to kill him. Well, the response of Jehovah to Elijah indicates that his main problem was that he was just physically drained, physically spent. There is a direct relation between our body and our mind our mind controls our body, but our body also controls our mind. And sometimes what we need is just a little rest. I heard a guy preaching here a while back, and he was making fun of all these Southern Baptists who use the you know, burnout as an excuse for doing nothing. He said, the problem with Southern Baptists is not that we're burnout. He said, our problem is that we've rusted out. And he, he began to brag about the fact that he works six hours, a, six days a week, 18 hours a day, and he kind of glorified and glamorized physical exhaustion as, as spirituality. When the fact is that the pace of our living and the pace of our church life drains the color from our faith, and sometimes the best thing, the most religious thing you and I can do is just to rest. And sometimes we lose the glow of our faith when we begin to feel like we're all alone in the struggle, when there's nobody to stand with us. As a matter of fact, if you trace 
1 and 2 Thessalonians to its ultimate end, you will find that it is an epistle of affirmation and encouragement. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter so that the people who have been scattered because of their faith and disconnected would understand that they are not alone. He wants them to know that he's in this with them. There's a remarkable passage in the book of Acts. Paul is in Corinth, the most wicked city in all of the world, and God appears to Paul in a vision and tells him, I'm going to protect you from harm, and I want you to know, he said, that I have many followers, many disciples in Corinth. Remarkable statement that in the most wicked city in all the world, there were some disciples, and God wanted Paul to know, don't lose your faith here in Corinth because you've got somebody here with you to stand beside you. That's important. As a matter of fact, the thing that keeps us from losing our zeal oftentimes is the intimate intimacy of a significant other. That's why the author of the book of Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. For where there are two, one of them, one can lift you up when you fall, keep you warm when you're cold, and keep you straightened out when keep you straightened out when you go when you go awry when you go wrong, and it's remarkable when you begin to look and see the the lives of the people that God used most effectively, were people that seem to move along through life in pairs. So there is Moses and Aaron, so there is Joshua and Caleb, so there is David and Jonathan. So there is Peter and John. So there is Paul and Silas. And when you look at the list of disciples in the 10th or 12th chapter of the book of Matthew, you will notice that he lists those disciples in pairs. And when Jesus sent out his disciples, 70 of them, he sent them out two by two. For as long as you have a significant other, that other person, that intimacy, that interrelationship keeps the glow to life. Almost paradoxically, however, sometimes we lose the glow of our faith because of others. And if you read through First and Second Thessalonians, you'll find that the thing that was draining away the fire, the zeal, the enthusiasm in the church at Thessalonica was the opposition that came from others from without and from within. And that opposition, that, that, that conflict, those encounters just drained away their faith. Sometimes it's the opposition, the, the indifference, it's the failure of others. It may be some, some parents here this morning who are struggling with a rebellious teenager and that, that, that problem is just draining away your life. Or it may be some husband and wife who are going through some difficult conflict in their marriage and that's just kind of drained them of their zeal for God. And it may be that, as I've heard recently of people who've come into the church and there in the church they've been disappointed. They've seen failure in the life of other people and that has caused them just to turn off to God. Sometimes the failures of others takes away the zeal. 
And sometimes we lose the color of our faith when expectation collides with reality. You see, some people develop a kind of an unrealistic expectation toward life. And sooner or later, those unrealistic expectations collide with reality. When I was pastor out in Seminole, Texas, a guy came into my office one day to tell me, he said, I feel God calling me to the ministry. He was, he was already a successful businessman. He had a, he had a, a ginning operation. He had farms. And he said, I'm going, to sell, I'm going to have a farm sale and sell all my equipment. I'm turning the ginning operation over to my brother and my father. He said, I'm going to the seminary and be a preacher. And I rejoiced with him. I knew that he'd been struggling with God's call to his life. A middle-aged man. And so I rejoiced with him. But, you know, not wanting to throw any cold water on his zeal, I wanted him to know the reality of what he was facing. And believe me, I knew and I told him, I said, now, Buster, be sure and know this, that when you get down to the seminary, there are a lot of preachers down there, and, and everybody's looking for a place to preach. And he kind of interrupted me. He said, that's not going to happen to me. He said, I've already had a vision. And he, this is his statement verbatim. He said, I've already had a vision. I'm going to be preaching to multitudes like Billy Graham. And so I did my best to try to help him to face reality. But all these expectations, and he went down to the seminary, true, he never got to preach. He had to work at night, and that was draining. His wife was unhappy. His children didn't like the changes in, in school. He had difficulty with his grades. Six months later, he was back in Seminole, Texas, and never came back to church. Sometimes that happens in marriage. And so here's a young woman lining her hope chest with all these unrealistic expectations. She's going to have kids that never cry, babies that never cry. She's going to live in a little vine-covered bungalow that never gets dirty and have dishes that never need washing. And she's going to have this wonderful husband that she's just going to love supporting, you know, and helping him meet his goals and dreams. And the reality is that the kids do cry and the house gets dirty and the dishes need washing. And one day she realizes that the children are gone from the nest and she, hates, she resents that husband who has his own career. Gail Sheehy points it out. She said at 35 is the average age when a woman sends her last child away to school. And 35 is the average age a woman has a, uh, an adulterous affair. And, every, and, and 35 is the average age the woman returns to the workforce. And 35 is the average age when the divorced woman remarries. And 35 is the average age of the runaway wife. And there is this collision between expectation and reality. Sometimes that happens in the church. And so we come into the church and we... We just know that everybody in the church loves the Lord and everybody's committed to tithe and to teach and to ministry and we get inside the church and we look around us and it's not like that to some degree. How do you gain it back? Or how do you keep from losing it? I got some help for you. First of all, by rediscovering the joy of serving the Lord. 
by rediscovering the joy of serving the Lord. Now notice, rediscover and Lord. There's an interesting play on words in this text. He says, you folks are not doing any work at all, but you're busy bodies. And he uses the same word in the Greek. It's not translated the same way in English. What he's saying is this, you, you people are not busy, you're busy bodies. And what, they, what was happening was, they had taken their eyes off the Lord in Thessalonica and they had turned their eyes to the problems and to others. And instead of serving the Lord, they were just, you know, busy with everybody else's business. Now there's a difference, watch this. There's a difference between serving the Lord and being busy. Being busy leads to resentment and exhaustion. Serving the Lord and serving other people brings joy. For service, serving the Lord is the joy of the Christian church. I can't get over John 13. That's my favorite chapter in the Bible. And there is Jesus with a towel around his waist and he's bending down, kneeling down, washing the feet of his disciples. He's doing a service, the service of a servant. In fact, he is doing what the disciples, some of the disciples ought to have been doing but wouldn't. He is serving there as a servant serves. And he got up when he finished washing their feet and he said, now fellas, I've done something. I've modeled some, some way of life. I want you to live. Now some people take this literally and so they have foot washing and services. I think what he was saying in essence is this. I have modeled a way of life for you. I have, dis, I have, I have pictured how I want you to live, how I want you to, what, I, what I want you to do. I want you to serve other people. And then he makes a remarkable statement. Are you listening? He said, if you do this, that is, if you serve other people like a servant, blessed are you. And the word there is makarios, and it's the predominant word of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the hungry, etc. And what it means, the word means the bliss of God the contentment of God, the joy of God. Now what Jesus is doing is giving us a clue as to how to keep the joy of our faith, how to keep the color of our Christianity. We'll, we'll be blessed, we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll have the bliss of God if we know how to serve and do it. How long is it going to take us how many times are the missionaries going to have to tell us before the yuppie with his gold American Express card believes them that it's more blessed to give than receive? And how many times is President Carter going to have to tell us that he has more fun building, work, repairing dilapidated houses in the ghetto than he had in the power of the White House before we believe him? Anthony Campolo tells about taking his little boy to an amusement park. And he said they rode all the rides, some of them 10 or 15 times, you know, the roller coasters and the whip and all of that stuff. And he says, it got time to go home. And he said, I said to my little boy, it's time to go home now. And he begged to ride the whip one more time, the roller coaster. And he said, no, it's time to go home. We got to go. And he said, 
my, my, my little boy said, well, I think Jesus would want me to ride the roller coaster one more time. And he said, well, he, had a, you know, he laid a little heavy theology on me there. And he said, I, I asked him, I said, where did you get that? And he said, well, you're always saying that Jesus feels what we feel. So when we're sad, Jesus is sad. And here he had him. When we're happy, Jesus is happy. And he said, I just know that Jesus wants to be happy. And he wants to, to ride the roller coaster one more time. Where did Jesus get his fun? I mean, where did he get his kicks in life? How did, how did he have his fun? Well, let me show you how he had his fun. You, you look at him sitting out on a well in Syker, ministering to a destitute and outcast woman, ministering to her needs there. And then the disciples come back with, uh, you know, food from town, you know, uh, a whopper from Burger King. And they said, Jesus, here's the food. He said, I don't need your food. I have food to eat that you know not of. My food, my essential food is to do the will of my Father. I have found something that keeps the glow to my life. It's serving the Father and the Father's children. Second thing, find your joy in the Lord. Now, find your joy in the Lord. That is, not in the gifts of the giver. Find your joy in the giver of the gifts. Now, you, 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 that's something you have to develop. That's something like Lee's going to be talking about on Sunday night as he talks about how to develop an intimate relationship with the Lord. Uh, you find your joy in the Lord, in the giver of the gifts, rather than in the gifts of the giver. I think I've shared with you that when I traveled a lot in the Northwest back several years ago, I, would feel, I felt so guilty for being away from home so much, I'd bring my kids' kid presents, you know. And so and I'd get off the plane and say, hello, and they'd say, what'd you bring me? You know, and I, it didn't take me long to figure out that they were more interested in my, what I had than in me. So one time I decided, you know, something happened, I didn't bring anything. And so what'd you give, what'd you bring us? And I said, what you see is what you get. And there was a tremendous look of disappointment, just to be honest with you. So I, I decided, it wasn't their fault, I decided that 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 was something that you had to cultivate, that you find, delight yourself in the Lord, the psalmist said. Now watch this carefully. When that happens, when you find your joy just in your walk with the Lord, then the absence or the presence of the gifts don't make any difference. The absence or the presence of the gifts are inconsequential if you delight yourself in the Lord. And that's why preacher Halleck could pastor a university church until he was 80 years old. And that's why at the age of 90 when he got cancer of the bone and a group of preachers were meeting with him, he said to them, gentlemen, when I first learned that I had cancer, I was depressed, but he said, you know, this cancer is a wonderful gift of the Lord. Well, he said, the Lord has spoken to me through this. Well, he said, men understand that life is a stewardship. And to the degree that the Lord can trust you, he will make you overseer of things. And, and I, I wasn't old enough, he said, or mature enough to be trusted with pain until I was 90. 
trusted with pain, trusted with a cancer. What preacher Halleck was telling us is that you can have such a relationship with the Lord that whether he blesses you with gifts or not doesn't matter. Just to have his fellowship brings the joy. Third thing, get a firm grip on the fact that what you do for the Lord will never be lost. Now, what First and Second Thessalonians is about is about what these guys were doing in light of the return of the Lord. Now, let me give you a little background here, and you just watch, hang in here with me. Over there in Thessalonica, they, just, they, they were sure that the Lord was coming back immediately, so they quit work. I mean, I'm not going to invest $10,000 in this business enterprise. You know, if the Lord comes back two weeks from now, lost all, you know, what's the use of doing? So they quit working. And they just kind of idling around, taking care of everybody's business, you see. And so Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians. There, there is that marvelous passage in there that we always read at the graveside of Christian funerals about the return of the Lord. And he writes this letter to, to affirm or to encourage them in two ways. To encourage them in the fact that the Lord indeed was coming back. He was in control. But to encourage them with this. Because he was coming back and because he was in control of history, they should go on doing twice as much for the Lord because that was, they, they could know then that that was not going to go unrewarded. See that? I was walking up in the halls last week, you know, up and down with a Bible school going on, and I could see all these kids having a good time. It was a great Bible school, and it was kind of, we kind of did it differently, and I saw all these teachers that were involved. It was just a wonderful experience, and I actually thought this, not ministerially speaking. I actually thought, isn't this great? All these people are involved and engaged in something that will live forever. Won't die when they die. Somebody was asked, what would you do if you had it all to do over again? I would reflect more. I would rest or risk more, and I would do more things that would outlive me. Now, the thing that brings joy to life and color to faith is the, is the conviction that what I'm doing here is not going to be lost in time. One last thing, perhaps the most important. Learn the art of a day-by-day -day dependent worship of God. Learn the art of a day-by-day -day dependent worship of God. Now, Jesus, let us know at the well in Syker that the most important thing about worship was not where we worship, but how we worship. He let us know that worship goes beyond, if it's genuine worship, goes beyond a place at a certain time and that the worship of God that impacts life is the worship that occurs day by day in a dependency upon Him. Now, I want you to get this down, if nothing else. There are three things that are involved here. The first is this. How do you worship in a day-by-day -day dependent way? First, when troubled by some crisis or anxious about some crisis, confess your sin then 
of thinking and acting independently of God and say to him, I'm going to step aside and let you flow into this moment. I'm going to step aside and let you flow into this day. So if you're anxious and troubled about some moment, a crisis or need, confess, confess to God that you're thinking and acting independently of Him and ask Him to flow into this. Second, commit yourself to His way by saying to Him or by asking Him again, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do at this moment in life? You, you give, give me some guidance here. What do you want me to do? And then third, do simply what, he's, what seems right, even regardless of how ill-timed or little or out of sequence that is. I mean, we're talking about obedient living. That's the way Jesus lived. He just lived in, in day-by-day dependence upon God, asking Him for every direction and every decision, day-by-day worship. And what happens there is what A. Leonard Griffith calls the development of the pendulum principle. Now watch this carefully. He said Jesus lived His life in joy never losing zeal even though he was constantly harassed by other people because he had developed the pendulum principle of life. That is, there was a rhythm to his life like the swing of a a pendulum, like the rhythm of resting and working, like the rhythm of going in and coming out. Jesus' life had a rhythm to it. He went into the Father and he went out to human beings. He went into God and out to others. He went into the Father and out to service and said, A. Leonard Griffin, he had 18 months to do all that he had come to do, but he never got anxious and he never ran from one place to the other saying, hurry up guys, hurry up, we gotta get to the next town, gotta get to the next sermon, gotta heal the next disease. For he knew, said A. Leonard Griffin, that he had to spend as much time with God as with man. He had to spend as much time going into God as out to man. I'm absolutely convinced. Please listen carefully. I'm absolutely convinced if we developed the art of day-by-day worship of God and there developed in our life the principle of in Him, with Him, and out with others, we would never lose, we would never lose our song. That's what's happened to many of us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have spoken to our heart in a relevant, to a relevant need. And I pray that you would help us to confess our need and to make those adjustments your Holy Spirit would make us adjust today. There are three invitations. I I wish you'd look here just just a moment. I've saved some time to do this in 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 a more specific way than maybe sometimes I do. The invitation this morning is to come and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, there are some things that I cannot 
I cannot assure you, I cannot promise you. There's some things I cannot even prove. All I can do is declare God's word. And God's word says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and we believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead, that is that he is a living savior, we will be saved. That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that promise is the promise of God's word. And just as I tried to explain to children in Bible school, that's what we're called to do first time to, in order to be saved, is to trust Jesus and Jesus alone and with the mouth confess him as our Savior and Lord. That is, tell him we accept him, we trust him. And there has to be that one time, point of time in life when that's done to be saved. An invitation this morning, perhaps, for uh, this invitation is for people to join the church. Now, we, we, we need one another, but we're not perfect. And, and if there's an expectation, I want to come there because everybody's just great and wonderful. Well, we're not. But we are on a pilgrimage. We, we are uh, seeking to follow God. And we need you to come and help us and to find the support and the love of a family called the church. Or maybe there's some this morning say, you know, you were speaking to me. I'm one of those people has lost his song. And all I can encourage you to do is just to take the step that, you know, that, that will get you started back. The recovery of the, of, the, of the love, the zeal, the enthusiasm. And sometimes that it, 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 may, it means that I need to come forward. Sometimes it doesn't. But what we ask, you know, in these inv this invitation is just for you to do what God wants you to do. And you know that in your heart. And so I stand and sing and you come.